And I hope you have your Bibles out. I am absolutely enthralled with preaching about Jesus. The best form of preaching is when you get to preach straight on to the Son of God. And we're going to do that today. We're going to do that through John chapter 3. And we're going to use a very... Well, I want to be very specific with our approach. So ladies, I'm going to speak to you for a moment, okay? There's three, I suppose, ways to approach a diamond ring. Probably more, but let me give you three. One of them is when you get engaged, ladies, and you wear that diamond ring for the first time, and everybody comes up, and they grab your finger, and they're ooing, and they're aahing about their ring for about 15 seconds, and then they want to know how did they, how did he ask, when is the date? That's one approach. Or you could go to the other extreme, and that is put the loop to your eye like a jeweler, Look for the four C's and really study the cut of the diamond and the facets. Well, that would be another approach. Or you can use the approach that we're actually going to use in this passage. And that is when a, when a man and a woman want to get married and they go out ring shopping together. And they're looking at it. They're not putting a loop to their eye. They're not just ooing and aahing for 15 seconds. They're really studying it. But not intensely for cut and clarity. But just, how does it look on my finger? Is this the shape that we want? Is this the price that we want? I'm going to wear this the rest of my married life, so I want to get the, the diamond ring that I really want to get. That's the approach we're taking. We're not going to be ooing and eyeing for 15 seconds. Neither are we taking the deep dive jeweler's approach to this passage. We're going to take the middle ground, because I'm going to leave a lot on the, on the, on the plate here. In fact, I could use a different metaphor, probably one that's better. So in the Old Testament, when they would take the scythes, and they would have teams of people do this, and they would have young people that would go behind, and they would mow down, they would cut down the grain, and then the young kids, the boys, would bundle it into bundles and load it onto donkeys or carts. They were commanded by God to leave some in the field for the widows and the poor. So we're going to leave a lot in the field, not really because we want to leave it for the widows and the poor. It's just we don't have time to cut it all down. And I'm trusting that in this incredibly familiar passage, you're going to study it a little bit further. So we're approaching the most famous verse in the entire Bible. Those usually are not very fun to preach because they've been preached so much. But we're going to approach the passage that it launches verses 16 through 21 of John chapter 3. And we're going to see four, back to the diamond ring, we're going to see four facets. And I'm going to bring all four of them out. And in that fourth one, there's two different lusters to it. And we're going to bring that out as well. And here's the first facet, and it focuses on verse 16. Here we go. It's the Father's love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So this is not going to be complicated, so let me just get right to it. You ready? Now look at me for a moment. This is incredibly important. You've got to get this, you've got to pound it into your heart, and you've got to be ready to share this. God loves you. God loves the world. God loves the world of humanity. You've got to start with that. Before you wax eloquent with theology, the greatest theology begins with God loves people. 
And just and today, as much as any time in history, people need to know just how great the Father's love is for them. So we've got John 3.16, which is a declaration of this love. But there's a word that is so inconsequential in this verse that I'm, I'm kind of guessing that none of us have ever stopped to really ponder it. Maybe, maybe a few. It's the word so. Pretty inconsequential, isn't it? For God, so. You know, John didn't really need to put that word. It doesn't demand that grammatically. Why did John put the word so in here? God so loved the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, the word so in the language of the Greek language actually means to the degree of something. Or, in other words, in this way. So, for God to the degree, he's going to tell you the degree. The degree is what follows, he gave his only son. You want to ask, God, how much do you love me? Have you ever done that with a loved one? They say, I love you, and you ask them, how much? While we read that little famous children's book, we do this all the time with our children when they were younger, my own four kids, you know, how much, this love, this much, that much, and then your arms as wide as you can get, or I love you to the moon and back, Andy and I, we're always trying to outdo one another, I love you to God's eternal nature and beyond, which is not possible, but that's what we say, because you can't trump that one, so for God so loved the world, well how much, what's the degree of his love, what's the measurement, how do you measure that love, well he tells you, here's his measuring cup, that he gave his only son. Now in your mind and in your ears, you ought to be able to hear God rolling out that carpenter's tape. It's got a distinct sound to it. He's going to measure it for us, John is. How much does God love you? He gave you, he gave the world his only son. That's the degree that God loves us. And this, the love of God, John later wrote, was made manifest, made clear, made exposed among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, God, so John is really measuring for us. John is really beginning this most famous passage by saying, here's how much God loves the world. He's going to send, he's going to give his only son. That's language for his son's going to be a sacrifice so that we can live. Because life through the son is why John wrote, whoever believes in him should not Perish, that's not a very nice word. Perish doesn't have a positive twist to it. There's not really, okay, well, let's look at it the bright side. Perish means you're going to suffer God's wrath forever. That's just plainly what John says. Now, I'm not sure where you come from theologically, where you grew up. I, I know a lot of you, but I don't know every one of you. So you might have, you might have grown up in a, what we would call a mainstream or liberal church, that really has axed out of the scriptures anything to do about wrath and eternal punishment. So your view of God is love, 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 love. Well, part of God's love is that there is discipline and there is justice. 
Whoever believes in him should not perish. There's the love measurement. He gave his son so that if you believe in him, you're not going to perish. You're not going to eternally suffer God's wrath. So in one sense, salvation is as wide as the entire world. For God so loved the world. That's pretty wide. But in another sense, it's extremely narrow because if whoever believes in him should not perish. So God so loves the world, you can't get God's arms wider than that, except it's only applicable to whoever believes in him. Because anybody who doesn't believe in him, outside of that, they're going to perish. So John says, God loves you, but you've got to believe in him. If you don't, you're going to perish. If you do, you're not going to perish, you're going to have life. See, the great factor that determines if a person will not perish is will that person believe in Jesus. Now, you can come from a Calvinistic perspective, which I do, and still say that. That's just literally the truth. The great factor that determines if a person will not perish is will that person believe in Jesus. And all the world needs rescuing. By the way, there's nobody that's up on high ground and you know, it's, this is really not applicable to them because you're a super good person. There are no super good people. There are good people. There are people that do phenomenally wonderful philanthropic things. It seems like every time you see them, they're talking about people who are suffering and how they can help and they give their lives to it. Except when you bring their good works up against God's perfect works, they still don't match up. There's still a gap. So the very best things that I have done in my life apart from Christ fall short of the glory of God. They fall short of the holy standards of God. There is still at the very depth of this. If you absolutely labor to dissect my goodness, even my motives at the very deepest level, I'm in it. The motives are about me. This is why our best works fall short of the glory of God. And all the world needs rescuing. And only those who believe in Jesus, John says, will not perish. But let me kind of take this, I'm going to turn that diamond facet just a slight bit so you can see a little bit more of this, the radiance of it. Not only does all the world need rescuing, now turn it a little bit, God is willing to do the rescue. Now you've got to come at it from that point. Now you're theocentric, now you're God-centric, now you're really looking vertical, now you're really giving glory to God. God is willing to do the rescue. We don't deserve it, it doesn't matter. He's willing to give it. He's willing to rescue by giving his son. And now this is more significant than you might ever know, for, for never, by the way, never was the world more racially divided than the century that Christ came. Now I want you to hear that because that might detonate a little bit of controversy for you. I'm going to tell you that when it says for God so loved the world, that was unbelievably powerful for John to write that. Because the first century had racial divides literally from adult to children, men to women, Greek to Jew, Jew to Roman, I mean, listen, there was every level of humanity a racial divide. And this is the world that Jesus stepped into and took on flesh. So this is really significant. Now let me tell you why. Now listen to this. Jews 
were taught from early on that God despised the Gentiles. If you don't know what a Gentile is, it's just a non-Jewish ethnic person. And God created Gentiles, non-Jews, for fuel to make the fires of hell burn. That's what they were taught, believe it or not. It was an ethical dilemma, by the way, whether a Jewish woman should ever help a Gentile woman give birth to a baby. Because then they would be culpable, guilty of bringing a Gentile into this earth, into this world. Their conclusion to that debate, should a Jewish woman ever help a Gentile woman give birth, the answer was no. You should never bring a Gentile into this world. That was what they were taught. In fact, when they came from outside of the land of Israel back into the land of Israel, they would literally stop where they felt and believed that the boundary of God's land was. They would take their sandals off and they would wipe the Gentile dust off of their shoes so that they would not bring defiled Gentile dirt into God's promised land. But the love of God for all the nations was proclaimed through all of their Hebrew scriptures, but they were blinded to that. The rabbis lost that. But listen, it wasn't much better in the other direction. Let me tell you how this worked. Roman philosopher Seneca, and I'm going to quote him, said the way of life of this accursed group, the Jews, has gained such influence that it is now received throughout the world. So their view of the Jews were they were accursed people. Roman emperors twice expelled the Jews from Rome, AD 19, AD 49, by Claudius the second time. Mass killings of the Jews, listen, you know the stories. Genocide, all of these attempts, all throughout history, the Gentile world has hated the Jewish people. What a terrible divide there was. Anti-Semitism raged as well as hatred toward the Gentiles. And God so loved the world, Jew and Gentile. Amazing truth. But it goes on, it's not just point number one, it goes on to the second facet of the diamond, the son's mission. We've looked at the father's love, that's the first diamond. Now we're going to twist it a little bit, we're going to change, we're going to rotate that diamond. Now we're going to look at the, the second one, the second facet, the son's mission. As familiar as verse 16 is, I bet by the way, almost all of you can quote this. It's so familiar, John 3, 16. I don't know, I, I know almost, okay, I'm just going to say it outright. I don't know anybody that's ever successfully been able to quote the next verse from memory. Now, somebody in here probably can. But as familiar as verse 16 is, verse 17 seems to be almost identically unfamiliar. And here's what it says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is amazing. Christian, we need to listen to this because we're bringing the reflection of the light to the world. So we've got to understand the son's mission is to save, not condemn. Save the world, not condemn it. Now, when you think of condemn, let me define it for you from the Greek language. It conjures the image of a courtroom where judgment is handed down by the judge. It's where we get the word critic, by the way, from this word condemn. It means critic. So Jesus did not come to dwell in humanity in order to criticize, judge, hand down the sentence, and condemn the world. 
And one might wrongly conclude then that Jesus doesn't judge at all. He just loves, he sings kumbaya, he, he accepts everybody and anyone into his eternal glory. That You could conclude that, and a lot of people have. So let me balance this. Now listen very carefully. Jesus will come a second time. It may be in our lifetime. The signs are growing. And his mission will be very different in his second coming than they were in his first. In the first time, he is robed in humanity. The second time, he's going to be in the robes of the judge. In fact, if you've got this dichotomy in your mind that, the, that, that God in the Old Testament is all angry and, and God is wrathful, but Jesus is so kind, and Jesus will never hurt a flea, Jesus is nothing but love. You've got, a, you've got a, a wrong understanding of God. They are identical in nature. Listen to Jesus' own words in John chapter 5. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. To me, he's saying. So let's get this really, really clear. You ready? The one that will judge all of humanity when he returns again will be Jesus. But in his first coming... In the beginning of the Gospels, he did not come to judge. He came to save the world. He was born for a mission. He came to rescue anyone who will come to him in faith. So friends, we can park our theology train at this station. Every single person needs saving. There's not really too many people that would disagree with that. Everybody needs saving. But the only way to be saved is through Jesus. This is proof positive that we can deal with the topic of sin without being condemning. Now listen, Christian, you should not be critically condemning of the unbelievers. For God so loved the world. It's the love of God that you should be communicating. And that love has truth in it. And that truth is exclusive, not inclusive. The world's message of religion is inclusive. And I've gotten more people angry at me from this point when I preach it than any, any other thing that I preach. It is one way to heaven. It is one way to the Father. It is through Jesus. It is not through good works. It is not through church membership. It is not through having a very good pedigree of a nice family. It is through belief in Jesus alone. Not relying on your works, not relying on your background, relying on the one who died in your place. That's it. Jesus is the God of love who saves people whose sin, by the way, has already condemned them. And it puts us to the third point, the world's choice. This is the third facet. So we're rotating that diamond again. There's a third facet to it, the world's choice. And here we pick it up in verse 18. Whoever believes in Jesus, him, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is, get the tense, look at your Bibles, condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now we've already seen the word believe, but now we need a pause to really understand it. So look at verse 16 again. Very, very familiar one for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes... Well, we didn't stop there. We didn't dissect that. We didn't really learn what that word means. We need to stop and we need to learn it now. 
verse 18. To believe in someone, now this is really important, right? So this is where, this is the meat of the sermon. So let's all really grab hold of this. To believe in someone and to have faith in someone, or to believe in something and to have faith in something, it's identical language in the scriptures. It means the same thing. Don't differentiate that, because John, by the way, one time only in all of his writings uses the word faith. 98 times in the Gospel of John, he uses the word believe. So he, he favors believes. But you could put the faith, see, believes is just the verb form of the noun faith. It's the same word in the Greek language. Believes is the verb, it's the action of it. And he's going to really dial this in in chapter 20 when he tells us that he wrote his gospel to help people believe, verb, help people believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one sent by God on a mission to save. But faith, now listen, this is really important, so hold on to this. Faith has generally been ripped by this world out of its biblical meaning to something that you subjectively wish to be true rather than what is objectively true. So faith to this world is what I really want, it, want to be true, not what really is true. See, the scriptures define faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is not seeing. Okay, Faith is knowing with assurance that what you hope for is true. It's the heart, it's the entire heart, it's the mind, the emotions, the will, and it's all coming into agreement with God's truth to produce a submission to his will. Now this is incredibly important, I'm going to illustrate this for you. In the late 1800s was a man named John Patton, phenomenal, this guy, unbelievable, who was translating the Bible on the Anawan Anawa, South Pacific Islands. They're off the coast of Australia about probably, I don't know, maybe a thousand miles. Being obviously necessary to translate the Bible into their own words. I mean, listen, when you translate the Bible, you've got to get it into their own heart language or they're not going to get it. So you've got to use their concepts and their words. But Patton couldn't find a word in their language for the concept of believing. He just could not find the word. And all the gospel's message was hinged on finding a word for this. And he is growing increasingly frustrated. Finally, he's working in his hut. He lived in the top of this hill as you came up off the beach. And he's working there and he's trying to translate and he's trying to think about, Lord, how can I translate this this word believe? It is critical for faith. An islander ran in and flopped into his chair exhausted and he says to John Patton in their language, it is so good to rest my whole body in this chair. And suddenly Patton knew he had his word for faith. Resting the whole weight of your soul on the promises of Jesus Christ, on the actions of Jesus Christ. Listen, if you want to know what it means to to believe, if you want to know what it means to have faith, probably the most central definition of it, just bring in the word rest. 
You rest your hopes on Jesus. You rest your confidence on Jesus. You don't rest them on your good works. You don't rest them on that you can clean up your act and God's finally going to accept you. You never will. You rest it on the one who died in your place. You don't mix it, a little bit of confidence in yourself, a little bit of confidence in Jesus, and together they're going to produce a powerful theological mixture. No, that is tainted faith. The devil and the demons believe, the Bible says, and they shudder. They didn't rest their confidence on the mercy of Jesus who died in their place. It's what it means to have faith. It means you rest from the endless effort of trying to rescue yourself. You rest from trying to deal with the problem of sin that every soul knows is there. Now listen, you know you've sinned. You do not need a pastor to tell you this. You know there is a violation of your conscience from being a little child that you felt guilty. There are things now, if they're heinous enough, even if you have a hardened heart or a seared conscience, will still prick conviction, still prick some guilt, things that you cross the line and you feel bad for. Listen, we all know that we sin. This is the condemnation in every person already condemned, verse 18, did you see it in there, the, the, the tense? They're already condemned. Their conscience already condemns them. They don't need Jesus to say, hey, you're a sinner. You're the worst sinner I've ever seen. You're such a repugnant sinner, I can't even stand to be around you. He didn't need to do that because they already know they're a sinner. They already know they're condemned. And if you're going to reject the only way for forgiveness, you will eternally suffer condemnation. But to those who believe, those who have faith, those who rest their souls on Christ, they have the assurance that God has forgiven them by accepting the sacrifice, listen, not of their efforts, but of the Son's death, burial, and resurrection who died in our place for our sins. You see, this is the great truth. The moment you believe, the moment you rest your hopes that Jesus was sent by God, Jesus was God, he died in your place, he died in my place so that I could live, he suffered the wrath of God in, on my behalf, in my place, the wrath of God was put onto him, the very moment you rest your confidence on that, you are saved and you have life beginning now and you will have it for eternity. And it's all because the true light of the world, Jesus, has come and he has shown us the way to faith. Look at the fourth facet and you're going to see this. The very final one, the light's purpose. Look at verse 19 with me. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. See, light in the scripture. Now, this is really fun, actually. I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a couple things here in a few minutes that are pretty interesting because when you get to the bible you got this motif of light and you got a motif of darkness two threads that begin in genesis and go all the way through the bible tying theological truths together light and darkness they intertwine it's amazing they're consistent all the way through the bible and when the bible talks about light and particularly when john talks about light 
among other things, he's talking about the presence and the holiness of God. He's talking about the knowledge of God. Jesus is the light of the, of, of the world. He came to show you who God is and to, and to show you the way to have eternal life. But there's another really interesting thing about light. The rabbis, in fact, let me just quote one of the rabbis. I'll just quote him. The Hebrew word for light has the same numerical value as the word for secret. Now let me tell you what that means. The gematria is the Jewish or the Hebrew way of assigning numbers to letters. Okay? They assign a numerical number to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And when you form the word light, you come up with the equivalent, the numerical equivalent, the same numerical equivalent as the word secret. Now there's something here, and the Jewish people get something better than we do. The light came to illuminate the most secret places in you and the most secret places in me. The part of us that we shut off from everybody. The part of us where our sinfulness, the part we hate about ourselves, gets stuffed down deep. The blinds are pulled. The drapes are drawn. The door is locked. Nobody gets in. Now, if they really earn your trust, they get some of the way in. But really, probably no one sees all the way in. You don't even like looking in there. And here comes the light of the world shining that part of you and the world flees. The world runs. The world doesn't want to see it. The world refuses to do anything with it. Now listen, faith is that God can see all the way in there and yet love you. Faith is that God can see the worst things in you and yet be willing to make you his child. Faith is the fact that you can rest your soul on the truth that you can never be something that God says, oh, too much. I can't be around you. That's what the Christian understands. That's what the Christian has come to believe. The world will not believe it. The world flees it. The world runs away from the light that shines everything. You see, the light of Christ is not final judgment. But like in a courtroom, now listen, get the metaphor, all the evidence is brought into the light. And the evidence that our sin condemns us means that we need a mediator. We need somebody that's going to be our attorney, one that Job cried out, Oh God, if there was just a mediator for me that can bring God down to me or bring me up to God so that we can speak face to face and arbitrate my case. Well, there is somebody, Job, his name is Jesus. And the Christian banks their soul on him. They rest the weight of their soul upon him. The world will not. And it's precisely where John goes as he shows us two little bit of lusters and nuances of that fourth diamond. Here's the first. Jesus reveals and convicts. Let me tell you about an example before we talk about that. It's hard to pronounce this guy's name. Alcibiades. He was a wealthy, spoiled Greek Athen. He was a friend of Socrates. You've heard of Socrates. He often said, and I'm quoting, Socrates, I hate you. 
For every time I meet you, you let me see what I am. That's what the world is saying to Jesus. You know, last week we saw that John often uses light as a symbol for moral understanding, the ability to know God, to see with spiritual discernment. And he points to Jesus as the true light, the light of the world who has come to show us God and to shine in the hearts of all people, to reveal the presence of sin. So imagine for a moment what you would do if you can make yourself invisible. I want you to think about that, seriously. What would you do if you can make yourself utterly invisible? Now, I'm a fanboy of the Lord of the Rings. Love the books, love the movies. Bilbo finds his ring and he puts it on and he's invisible. Frodo gets the ring, he puts it on and he can find that he makes himself invisible. But what I read, which was something I had just recently learned, was that a, the probable source for Tolkien's ring that made Bilbo and Frodo invisible when they wore it was none other than Plato. See, Plato wrote a story. He was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher of the 4th century BC. He wrote a story about a humble shepherd. And there was an earthquake. And the shepherd stumbled upon a bronze horse that in the earthquake split open. And in that horse, he found gleaming a ring. And he reached in and he got that ring. And he discovered that when he put the ring on, he became invisible. And it wasn't long before this humble, kind shepherd began to do the most corrupt, vile things because of his power of invisibility. And Plato's reason that he wrote this is he was arguing that morality exists only because there's accountability. And if you remove accountability, then anybody and everybody will descend into the most immoral behavior. Well, look at verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. They hate the accountability. It does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. See, the power of light is to make all things visible, and it's why the world will not come to Jesus. By the way, I can prove this through an atheist, and I'll do it for you, Aldous Huxley. You may have heard of him. He's the most, one of the most famous atheists that have ever lived, prolific writer. You want to know what Aldous Huxley said towards the end of his life? I'm going to quote him so that I can't possibly be misconstrued. Here's what Huxley says. I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption for myself. As no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaningless was essentially an instrument of liberation, of freedom. The liberation, the freedom we desired was freedom from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. This is Aldous Huxley. He wanted to render meaningless without purpose to everything in this world because if he could prove that there was no purpose and there was no meaning to anything, then he could do whatever he want. There wouldn't be an accountability for it. There's no such thing as a God judge. See, he put all of his efforts into proving that God is 
existless and that the world was full of meaninglessness so that he could live whatever way he wanted. See, for some, the light of Christ is an inconvenience and a terror. But for the Christian, it is a clear sign of God's work of redemption and it brings him great, great glory. And this is my final luster of that fourth point, to bring glory to God. And look at verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And that really does seem a strange verse. I had to really puzzle over this one this last week. Because it kind of makes salvation feel like it's done in your own effort. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. Simply the one who does what is true, however, is the one who comes to the light believing in Jesus. This is faith language. This is the way that John describes what it looks like to rest your confidence on Christ. You will gladly come to him. You will gladly open up your heart, say, look inside, search me, look at the worst of it, because I now know, I am convinced that you will love me through it. You can see everything bad with me, even the stuff that I don't want to see, and you can still choose to love me. You can still show your mercy to me. You'll show, still have your grace for me. So I'm coming to you, resting my soul on that. That is faith. That's what it means to believe. And that work, coming to faith in Jesus, and listen, this is really utterly important. It shows that it's been carried out in God. Or in other words, I'm going to literally translate that. It's accomplished in God. So if you come to the light doing what is true, not living in darkness, not rejecting Jesus, it's clearly going to show that God is at work in your life because you can't come to the light without him. It's a work of God. He convinces you. He persuades you. This is the entire the entire reason for the conversation that he has in the first part of chapter 3 with Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night. Now you know the literary work of the light that John is using. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, listen, you've got to be born of the Spirit and of the Word and of the water. If you're going to come to God, he's got to do a work of regeneration. He's got to persuade you to rest your soul. You've got to come to him because he's already come to you. And you will come to him and you will bring great glory to him. He's going to get the credit. Because he's the one that went out on a rescue mission. And it was done in his power and his mercy as a demonstration of his great love. So four facets to the diamond in this passage. And as we've looked with interest rather than intense scrutiny, I want to ask you to ponder a question. Now you're not going to see this at the bottom of your bulletins because you may or may not have your bulletin with you. This service doesn't. But there's a question on the screen that you're going to see. And I'm going to encourage you to write down Chloe's email, or not Chloe's email, but the email that you see, which is simply christmas at cornerstonechurches.org. Here's the question for you. How has Jesus brought light into your life? How has he shined in the very darkest parts of you and persuaded you that he loves you? How has he brought moral understanding 
of who God is? How has he proven to you and persuaded you that he is merciful, that he is kind, that he is loving, so that you could rest your soul on him and believe? And we want you to email, email your answers to that email, christmas at cornerstonechurches.org. And we're going to put this question out on all of our, our media streams that we've got, Facebook, Instagram, and et cetera. And we're going to be showing this at the special Christmas service at the State Theater. We're going to show some of your answers during that service. And we're asking you to give us your answers. How has Jesus brought light into your life? This is your opportunity to testify to God's glory, the great things he has done for you. By bringing the true light, Jesus, into your world. Now let me close with this. And if you haven't listened to too much, this will be hopefully enough for you as we, as we end. Do you truly know how much of a sinner you are? Don't be afraid of that question. It is the reality. But don't end there because that's the worst form of pastoral torture I can give you. Take it to the end. Ready? Do you truly know and have you been persuaded of how great God's love is for you? Because if you're a great sinner that has not been persuaded of God's great love, you will go all Aldous Huxley and you will spend your entire life why it's okay to live the way you want. And you will suffer eternity in darkness. Are you persuaded of God's great love? And have you rested your confidence alone on him? On the one who died in your place? That's the question that I would encourage you to ask. Let me pray for you.